All right, well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming out. And we're going to get started here. So they have asked me to make an announcement about this afternoon's breakout session, which is breakout session number five. All of the speakers will be at designated locations um, for counseling, answering questions, or prayer. So I'll be in Ponderosa. I think Dwayne Lemon will be there as well. And then um, I think Kiala's here in Chaparral, and they're going to be in one of the rooms also. So um, just keep that in mind. So if you want to talk to the speakers, they just wanted us to announce that at the beginning of this session. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started and um, bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what we're experiencing here at Southwest Youth Conference this year. And I pray that you would bless us in this next hour as we go through some very important information from the book of Revelation. We thank you for your leading on our lives, and I pray that you would guide us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so um, I'm assuming most of you were in Sabbath school yesterday morning, so this is sort of just going into a little bit more depth than what we talked about then. I also talked yesterday afternoon about the high priestly work of Jesus in a, a bit of a more detailed fashion as it relates to the seven churches and the seven seals. And in that presentation, basically, I, which kind of lays the foundation for what we're talking about this morning, in a nutshell, what we saw is that Jesus, who is our high priest, is a witness who gives testimony in court. And what he says about the Advent movement, when you look at the second Advent movement through the book of Revelation, it's, it gets off to a, a pretty bad start. When Jesus looks at the second Advent movement in Revelation, he says, you make me want to throw up. <laughs> and that's who we are. Now, Jesus loves us, yes, but at the same time, you can love someone and still be disappointed at where they are in life. So just because Jesus loves us doesn't mean that he's always happy with the decisions that we make or the direction in life that we're headed. And when he looks at Adventism, the church of the judgment hour, the church that he's giving testimony about, he says, you make me want to throw up. That's the, we talked about that yesterday. Now, interestingly, when you come to the seals, and this is what I did yesterday as well as I connected what Jesus is doing on the throne because Jesus says, if you overcome as I overcame, you'll sit with me in my throne. So that's what he says to Laodicea. Then when you come to the seals, you see Jesus as the lamb slain on the throne, worthy to open the book with seven seals. Now, I don't think any of you were here yesterday, so I'm going to just... Oh, you were, so you, you remember. But... Um, one thing that's very interesting when you look at the seals is that Jesus is found worthy to open the book with the seven seals. And he's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And now I'm, I'm just giving you a really quick rundown here. Um, it's, or it's verse 5, Revelation 5, verse 5. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who's prevailed to open the book with seven seals. Now, it's interesting. When you go to the Old Testament, the concept of the root of David is, is described as the root of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11. 
And in Isaiah chapter 11, there are two roots of Jesse. And Jesse, of course, is David's father. So if you're the root of David, you're going to be the root of Jesse. So who's described as the root of Jesse in Isaiah 11? Jesus is in the first nine verses of Isaiah 11. But then when you start in verse 10, and I should probably read this to you so that you'll see what I'm talking about. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And this is just a brief foundation before we get to our next section here. In verse 11 it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So then you go to verse 11 and it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. So now this is interesting because you look at the first nine verses and the root of Jesse is clearly Jesus. But the root of Jesse in the end of Isaiah 11 is actually the remnant that God recovers a second time. Now his first remnant was the children of Israel. The second remnant who has an ensign, which is the Sabbath, and the Gentiles seek it and they receive rest because the Sabbath is connected with rest. This root of Jesse is the remnant, which is the second advent movement. And so the book of Revelation is always talking about the second advent movement. You see it as the Laodicean church and the seven trumpets. And in the seven seals, you see it as the root of David connected to Jesus. Now, here's the amazing thing. What you see in the seven seals is that Jesus triumphs or has conquered so that he can open the book of seven seals because he's the root of David. And the reason why that qualifies him to open the seals is because his life and death on this earth qualifies him to begin opening the book with seven seals. But this book is sealed up, and in order to open it completely, you have to unseal all seven seals. Does that make sense? So you get progressive revelation as you go through the seals, and you get through the first six seals, which takes you right up to the second coming, but then you see that the seventh seal is not going to be unsealed, until the 144,000 are sealed in their foreheads. Now, the 144,000 come from the second advent movement, which is the root of Jesse or the root of David. So what does that tell us? That only when Jesus reproduces himself in the 144,000 will he have the root of Jesse or the root of David the second time and when he has it the second time, then he opens up the last seal. And then the book is fully open. And when the seventh seal is open, it says there's silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. That's the second coming. So this is fascinating to me because the root of David is Jesus. Root of Jesse is Jesus. But it's also the second advent movement. So how is the second advent movement equated to Jesus? Well, it's because the 144,000 become like Jesus because he reproduces his character in the Advent movement. The Advent movement becomes like Jesus, and then that vindicates him to finally open the seventh seal, and he comes back to take his people home. So that's what we talked about yesterday. Laodicea, you start off with the second Advent movement, and it makes Jesus want to throw up. 
But then you come to the seals and it's like, but from that group of people that makes Jesus want to throw up, he develops a group of people that become like him, which vindicates him to open the last of the seals. He could open the first six seals based on what he did on this earth, but he can only open the last of the seals when he reproduces himself in the second advent movement. That's pretty amazing to me. Yeah. Revelation 8, verse 1. It says, And the seventh seal was opened, and there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. That's the second coming of Jesus. Yeah. So that's where we were yesterday. Now, so we see the throne. Jesus says, If you overcome as I overcame, you'll sit with me in my throne to Laodicea. Then from the throne, we see that he's the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's prevailed to open the book with seven seals. And he's prevailed through his life and death on the cross and through his final triumph through the second advent movement just before he comes back. And so... Jesus, he's the high priest, he's on the throne, he's working to develop a group of people. And now when we come to the seven trumpets, I talked about this yesterday, but when we come to the seven trumpets, at the beginning of the trumpets in Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 through 6, we see that starting in verse 3, you have Jesus as an angel standing at the altar of incense with a censer in his hand, and he's, the prayers of the saints are ascending from the censer, so he's interceding on behalf of his people, and this is taking place in the holy place. Now, some people get confused, and I mentioned this yesterday, because the angel takes the censer and casts it into the earth, and so people say, oh, this is talking about the close of probation. Well... The reality is, is that the trumpets represent a progressive close of probation, if you will, for the people that receive the judgments that the trumpets give. So when you look at the big picture of the trumpets, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you study the history of it. Um, Ellen White makes it very clear in Great Controversy 334 that what the Millerites taught about the sixth trumpet, which was that the fall of the Ottoman Empire on August 11, 1840 was the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet. She calls that a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. So if your interpretation of the trumpets veers away from that, then you've gone off the tracks. So then you work backwards from there, and the trumpets are judgments on the people who persecuted God's people. Because you look at the churches, and that's the history of the Christian church from the time of the apostolic church to the time of the judgment hour. The seals describe the history of the Christian church, but as it relates to how the world around them related to them. And basically after the, the white horse, when you get to the red horse, it becomes a persecuted church and then a compromised church and a sick church and then you have souls crying out under the altar, God, when are you going to avenge our blood? And so you see in the seals, there will be a time when God will judge his people and there's actually a progressive judgment that takes place. It starts with the Western Roman Empire who had been responsible for persecuting the early Christian church, and God used um, various powers, including the barbaric nations, to bring judgments on the Western Roman Empire, which led to the fall of the Western Roman Empire by 476 AD, and that takes you through the end of Revelation chapter 8. Then when you get to Revelation chapter 9, the Ottoman Turks show up 
the Islamic nation, and they start pouring out judgments on the Eastern Roman Empire, and that culminates with this remarkable time prophecy of 391 years and 15 days, which is described prophetically as one hour, one day, one month, and one year. It's literally 391 years and 15 days. And so that takes you through the, through the first six trumpets, and these are judgments on Western and Eastern Rome for the persecution of God's true people. Now, that's getting into the detail of the trumpets, but in the big picture, the big picture starts off where Christ is the angel with a censer in his hand, and he is interceding for his people at the altar of incense, which means he's the high priest. And he's described as the angel. That's very important because when you come to Revelation chapter 10 and the mighty angel comes down from heaven, we're still speaking about Jesus and he goes from being the angel to the mighty angel because the nature of his work is going to escalate as he moves from the holy place to the most holy place. Let me just read to you... Um, Ellen White's statement from Great Controversy 334. She says, In the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Two years before, Josiah Litch, one of the leading ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9, predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown in AD 1840, sometime in the month of August, and only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, allowing the first period 150 years. By the way, the fifth trumpet was five months or 150 years. That's where he's referring to here. Allowing the first period 150 years to have been exactly fulfilled before D. Cozies ascended the throne by permission of the Turks, which that took place in 1299, and that the 391 years, 15 days commenced at the close of the first period, which is 1449, it will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be found to be the case. Now this is what, now Ellen White's going to speak. That was Josiah Lidge. She says, at the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the protection of the Allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations. The event exactly fulfilled the prediction. Now, let me just say something here. She's already called it a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. Now she says the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. I hear people say today, well, Josiah Litch gave up his belief after October 22 in that prophecy. He didn't even believe it after October 22. So why should we? Well, guess what? Do you know what Josiah Litch did with the 2300-day prophecy? Same thing. So if you say, well, Josiah Litch doesn't believe in August 11, 1840 anymore. Why should we believe in it? Well, he didn't believe in October 22 anymore either. So if you throw out August 11, 1840, then you need to throw out October 22, 1844. And interestingly, when you study the trumpets out, it's connected to the three woes where trumpet five is the first woe, trumpet six is the second woe, um, trumpet seven is the third woe, and Revelation 11:14 says, the second woe is past, that's the sixth trumpet, and behold, the third woe, that's the seventh trumpet, cometh quickly. And then when you see the seventh trumpet sound, the most holy place is open in heaven, that's 1844. 
There's only a period of four years, two months, and 11 days between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So that's, that's pretty quickly. All right. Now, I want to look at Revelation 10 especially now. Because we've looked at the churches. Jesus says, Second Advent Movement, you make me want to throw up. You look at the seals, and Jesus is the root of David who reproduces himself as the root of David through the Second Advent Movement. And when he does, the 144,000 receive the seal of God, and that vindicates him to open the book with the seven seals. That's pretty amazing. So now we want to find out how did God take this Laodicean movement that makes him want to throw up and churn it into a reproduction of himself, which is the root of David, so that he could put the seal of the living God in their foreheads. Is that not a good question? Because the seals don't tell us how it happens. It just says it happens. You know, you look at Laodicea, and you come to the end of that, and you're like, wow, I hope they let Jesus come in, because that's not a pretty picture. And then you come to the seals, and you're like, Wow, he reproduces himself as the root of David and places the seal of the living God on their foreheads because they become like him. How did that happen? It's like, I'm thankful it did, but how does it happen? So that's where Revelation 10, at the end of the seven trumpets, gives us more information as to how this happened. So turn to Revelation chapter 10, looking in verse 1. And this would be in the time period of 1840, after the fulfillment of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is when the Millerite movement takes off. And Revelation chapter 10 verse 1 says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. So here we see a mighty angel coming down from heaven. And again... At the beginning of the trumpets, we see the angel in heaven in the sanctuary. So if you see an angel at the beginning of the trumpets in the holy place at the altar of incense, and now Revelation 10 says he's coming down from heaven as a mighty angel, you start to have a clue as to who this mighty angel is. And when you follow the sequence here, you gain a better idea of how this mighty angel is Christ. He's clothed with a cloud. A rainbow is upon his head, and his face is like the sun. His feet are like pillars of fire. First of all, he's clothed with a cloud. Go to Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. And here we read, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of what? Of a cloud. To lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now look also at Leviticus 16, verse 2. Leviticus 16, verse 2. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat. Now when it says the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, what's that talking about? 
That's the most holy place. Which is upon the ark that he die not, for I will appear where? In the cloud upon the mercy seat. So when it says you have a mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, when Jesus was in the cloud as the pre-incarnate Christ, where was that cloud in the Old Testament? It was in the most holy place over the mercy seat. So when you start the seven trumpets, Jesus is in the holy place at the altar of incense doing a work of intercession. But Revelation 10 is announcing that he's moving apartments because he's clothed with a cloud. And when he's clothed with a cloud in the Old Testament, that cloud is over the mercy seat in the most holy place. Furthermore, when you've studied the sequence of prophecy in the trumpets, and this is why understanding the, the correct prophetic sequence of the trumpets is so important, when you understand that Revelation 9.15 and Revelation 9 ends with the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet in 1840, now you know that you're very close to the end of the 2300 days when it says under 2300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, which that takes place in the most holy place. So Jesus is coming down from heaven to give power and impetus to the Millerite movement because they are actually preaching about the fulfillment of the 2300-day prophecy, and he comes down from heaven himself to give power to that movement as the mighty angel. He's the angel at the beginning of the trumpets. Now he's the mighty angel because his work is escalating as our high priest. That's pretty powerful. And he's showing that he's going to be doing that work as the high priest, just as in the Old Testament he was clothed with a cloud above the mercy seat in the most holy place. Now he's going to be in the most holy place. So that's the first thing. He's clothed with a cloud. but He also has a rainbow upon his head. And... In Genesis chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, the rainbow was a covenant or a symbol of the covenant between God and Noah. So the, the fact that there's a rainbow shows that God has a covenant with his people. And furthermore, Revelation chapter 4, verse 3 shows that there's a rainbow around the throne of God. So Jesus, he's coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, showing that he's moving to the mercy seat to renew the covenant with his people from the throne of God that is moving from the holy place to the most holy place, just as Daniel 7 shows that the throne has wheels and it can move. So Jesus is the angel, the high priest, the intercessor, who is moving apartments because he's clothed with a cloud. He's moving to the mercy seat. And he has a rainbow above his head because the rainbow is above the throne of God. And the rainbow shows that God is going to renew a covenant with his people. And the reason why the covenant needs to be renewed with his people is because the Christian world had lost sight of the Sabbath. And the covenant is God's law in our heart and mind. And he's going to renew the new covenant where he will write his law into our hearts and minds, which is, by the way, part of the cleansing of the sanctuary. When God writes his law, his character into our hearts and minds, we become cleansed of sin. And when we become cleansed of sin, the sanctuary becomes cleansed of sin. And that's what Jesus is doing. So 
based on the clothing and the description of Christ here, you know that this is sanctuary language. You know that this is related to this time period that 1840, Ottoman Empire falls, sixth trumpet comes to an end, the seventh trumpet is about to sound, and so now Jesus comes down from heaven to give impetus to the movement here on earth that is proclaiming the message unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Let me tell you something. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are not following cunningly devised fables. Jesus is the leader of our movement. He came down from heaven to start this movement. And when he looks at this movement that he came down to start, again, you go back to Laodicea and he says, you know, I came down from heaven to start this movement and you make me want to throw up. But I'm planning to produce a reproduction of my character in you so that you become the root of David, so that you will be that you will have the experience of being cleansed. So, let's keep going here. His face shines like the sun. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 describes Jesus as the son of righteousness, not S-O-N-S-U-N. So, Jesus is coming down from heaven to move from the holy place to the most holy place. He's giving impetus to this movement, so he doesn't give it to any angel to do. He himself raises this movement up. And he's clothed with a cloud showing that he's moving to the mercy seat. He has a rainbow above his head showing that he's going to renew the covenant. And this covenant, which is the everlasting covenant, is based on the everlasting righteousness of Christ. He is coming to raise up a movement that will experience the righteousness of Christ. And it talks about how his feet are pillars of fire, and that, again, connects to the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So Jesus comes down from heaven to raise up a new movement that he's going to lead from this earth to heaven by moving apartments from the holy place to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary to prepare a people just as he led the children of Israel of old from Egypt to Canaan. He's going to lead spiritual Israel today from the, the Egypt of this world to the heavenly Canaan. Now, verse 2 says, he had in his hand a little book open. What do you think that little book is going to be talking about? That little book is going to be talking about the very work that Jesus is doing. And the very fact that he has a book that's open in his hand, what does that tell you about that book at one point? It was closed. And what book in Scripture was sealed or closed at one point? The book of Daniel. Now, not the whole book of Daniel, because if you read Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold, you would be able to read that and figure that out. It's not like he would read that and say, I don't know what that means. What does it mean when Daniel says, you are this head of gold? It's sealed. I can't figure it out. I have no idea what that means. No, the, the, I mean, Martin Luther even had figured out that the little horn of Daniel 7 was the papacy. And we can't figure that out today. I mean, the Protestant reformers knew who the little horn was. 
So it was the portion of Daniel that was sealed, which specifically was the vision of the evenings and mornings or the vision of the 2300 days, which was to be sealed till the time of the end. And so Jesus is coming down from heaven to announce this movement that has been raised up on this earth that is preaching from Daniel chapter 8, 14 unto 2300 days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This is my movement. I have raised it up. This is my message, and it's pointing to the work that I am going to do in the sanctuary in heaven. So again, we're part of a special movement that Jesus is the leader of. Now again, we're Laodicea, and we make Jesus want to throw up. So we shouldn't have any spiritual pride. We shouldn't, because I can guarantee you that at some point in your life, if you're not that way right now, you've made Jesus want to throw up. Sorry, that's the reality. He loves you, absolutely, but it doesn't change the fact that he's not always been happy with what we're doing. But he's raising us up for a very special work. So this book that's open in the hand of Jesus is specifically Daniel 8.14, which points to the cleansing of the sanctuary. And his right foot's on the sea, his left foot is on the earth, that reflects that this is a worldwide message. And the seven thunders, Ellen White just tells us, relates to the events under the, um, the Millerite movement and what happened during that time. Now, when you get to verse 5, it says, The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that what? That, the, that there should be time no longer. Now, what time, if you're just looking at this passage, where would you get information about the time that would be no longer? You're going to go look in um, Habakkuk or Zechariah or maybe Psalms or Second Chronicles and say, let's try to figure out what this time no longer means. Where are you going to find out what this time no longer is? In the little book that's open. Daniel 8.14. Daniel 8, 14, and to 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That takes you to the point in time where there is time no longer. How can we show this? Well, the 2,300 days takes us to the most holy place, which takes us to the judgment hour. And in Revelation 14, in connection with the judgment hour, you have... Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Here in Revelation chapter 10, it's very similar where the message of creation is connected to the fact that there is time no longer. In Revelation 14, in the first angel's message, the message of creation is connected to the idea that the hour of his judgment is come. Now, the Millerites got a bit confused on this, and they said, see, there's going to be time no longer. This is the end of the world. And they didn't get the idea that this was the end of prophetic time, ushering in the judgment hour. But Revelation 14 makes it very clear. Creation, the being reminded that God is creator, that the Sabbath is part of the creation message, is connected to the judgment hour of Earth's history, which means when you hit the judgment hour of Earth's history, there's no more prophetic time. And in Revelation 10, 
the creation message is connected to no more prophetic time. So time no longer and the hour of his judgment has come is the same thing. Does that make sense? So time no longer, hour of his judgment has come and it's connected to the Sabbath message. So here in Revelation chapter 10, the fact that we're reminded that God is creator, it's a reminder that he is the creator of the Sabbath, that he's here to renew the covenant. And it's the Sabbath commandment. That's the only one he says, remember, because he knew it would be forgotten. And Adventists still forget it today, too. But anyway. So, when we get to verse 7, it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So, Revelation 11, 15 to 19 shows that when the seventh angel sounds, the most holy place is open in heaven. And so Jesus is saying that when the seventh trumpet begins to sound and the Advent movement is raised up, the mystery of God shall be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now, I think most of you know what the mystery of God is, right? Colossians 1.27. Maybe we should turn there. Most of you know, but some of you may not have seen this. Go to Colossians 1, and we may pick it up in a verse or two sooner than verse 27. Let's go to Colossians 1. And this is the work that Jesus is going to be doing in the Second Advent Movement from the Most Holy Place. Let's start in verse 25. Paul says, Where have I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even what? The mystery, which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Notice verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this what? Mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Christ our righteousness. That's the theme of this conference. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth where? In me. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery of God, Christ in you, is being crucified with Christ. And then Galatians 2 goes on to say, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? The faith of the Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message of Revelation 14. So the mystery of God being finished is Christ in you, the hope of glory, living by the faith of Jesus, which is the third angel's message. So Jesus is saying, I'm coming down from heaven to raise up a movement through whom I'm going to reproduce my character. So you look at Laodicea and you say, whoa, this is your judgment hour church and it makes you want to throw up. But then in the seals, it's like, wow, you sealed that people that made you want to throw up and you reproduced your character into them in them. How did you do that, Jesus? Well, Revelation 10 shows us Jesus, the mighty angel, comes into the most holy place to begin a special work of purifying his people. And through the prophetic message that points to the cleansing of the sanctuary, we have this promise that during the judgment hour of earth's history, when there's no more prophetic time, the mystery of God will be finished, which is Christ in you, which means that Adventists will surrender to Jesus. Which is why Jesus says to the Laodicea, if any man will open the door, I will come in. 
So that's Adventism's great problem even today. We're happy to have Jesus on the outside, and with our lips we draw near, but our hearts are far from him. And Jesus says, you need to let me come in. And if we let Jesus come in, it will change our character. As I said in Sabbath school yesterday, we'll actually become nice people to be around. Stop being those grumpy grouches, moody, this and that, bitter and angry and mad at the world, discouraged. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'd rather have Christ in me than me. Because I'll tell you what, yeah, I can get up here and give messages, but if I'm not surrendered, it's not a pretty picture. And we all know that. We all know what we're like when we're not converted. We, we can put on a good front and get by for a while and then something goes wrong again and then we're back in our whatever it is, our bad cycle. And then we kind of get out of that bad cycle for a little bit and then we're back in the bad cycle again. And Jesus says, I can help you get out of that. That's what he's, why he's in the most holy place. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this concept of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is connected to the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, here's the thing. Let me read just a few more verses. Oftentimes, we stop in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But Paul's not done yet. Verse 28, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So notice, people say, oh, I love the gospel of Paul. Yeah, I do too. And you know what Paul preached? He preached Christ in you, the hope of glory, and he warned every man saying, this is the Christ you need, not Christ outside of you, not a legal covering only, but Christ in you, the hope of glory, so that you may be perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the words of Scripture. And then he goes on in verse 29 and says, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Which, in other words, you know, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. So because he's crucified with Christ, Christ lives in him, and Christ works through him mightily. Sometimes we give lip service to soul winning because... Well, that's what we're supposed to do. And the Bible says people that go to heaven will be winning souls. So I better do that checklist this week. Our, my church is doing door to door. I'll go. Maybe I'll get some brownie points for the kingdom. Boy, if that's your motivation, do you really love Jesus? Christ in you, the hope of glory. But if you don't have Christ in you, you don't have anything to share. It's like, oh, hey, here's, a, um, here, here's some literature. You might want to read about State of the Dead. Oh, phew, don't have to do that for another six weeks. Oh. No, Paul, when Christ is in him, the hope of glory, he labored striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And then notice this in verse 1 of chapter 2. This message is relevant for another church besides the church at Colossae. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at where? Laodicea. Laodicea. You know what Laodicea's problem is? They don't have Christ in them, the hope of glory. 
And then he says in verse 2 that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. So we need to be knit together in love. Think about this. What if Christ really was in us, the hope of glory? Wouldn't our hearts be knit together in love because we all have Christ in our hearts, so we'll all love each other. But instead, we put ourselves into different camps, and then we have disagreements, and then the good old self rises up, and we have arguments, and this and that, and then you have all sorts of dysfunction because Christ is not in us, the hope of glory. And we hide behind policy and statements and this and that. And yet at the end of the day, Christ wants to throw up. It's the reality. But if Christ is in us, the hope of glory, there's going to be a difference that will bring us together in love. And when that happens, that's evidence that Christ is in our lives, that we have been cleansed of sin. And as the apostles on the day of Pentecost came together and they put their differences aside and their hearts were knit together in love, then the Holy Spirit was poured out. But that hasn't happened yet in Adventism. So apparently our hearts are not knit together in love. Okay. Now, going back to you, Revelation here. At the end of Revelation 10, and you know, there's the great disappointment, sweet in the mouth, bitter in the belly, and that's further evidence of the great disappointment that the Advent movement went through after they ate the little book of Daniel. Verse 11 says, He said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Meaning, the Millerite movement had their experience up until 1844. And after 1844, when the seventh trumpet begins to sound, now the second Advent movement is to take the third angel's message, which wasn't fully understood up until October 22, where now the commandments of God in the most holy place are connected to the message of the coming of Jesus and the Sabbath is connected to it. Now we are to prophesy again, this is the third angel's message, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So now Revelation chapter 10 um, gives us further evidence of the prophetic message that we have. And by the way, what time am I supposed to? 12.30? Okay. So here's where we are in the big picture of Revelation. Looking at the sanctuary message, Jesus is our high priest in the most holy place, and you see his work as the faithful and true witness in court, giving testimony in court to Laodicea, saying, you make me want to throw up. You think you're okay, and you're not. But then he reproduces himself as the root of David through the second advent movement, through whom he places his seal in their foreheads. And then we see that in the second advent movement, that what he does specifically is that he moves to the most holy place to renew a covenant where he writes his law into our hearts and minds so that the character of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is reproduced so that we actually become like Christ, our hearts become knit together in love, and the Spirit of God works in us mightily so that we become a force for God, a powerful witnessing force for God. 
Don't think you're just going to skate by into the kingdom like, well, I go to church and I kind of do just enough right things. And I, yeah, no, no. When you love Jesus, the heart's going to change, the inside's going to change, the outside's going to change. But most importantly, you're going to be witnessing and working for God. Ellen White says, if you've lost your love for souls, you're Laodicean or lukewarm. If you don't care about witnessing or soul winning, you're Laodicean. And that makes Jesus want to throw it. Because if you have Jesus in your heart, Jesus won souls all the time. And if we have Jesus in our heart, we're going to be doing soul winning. Because we love him. And we say, we have the most amazing message that's ever been given to the world. The most comprehensive message. The message that points to the soon coming of Jesus. And this should not be a scary message. We love Jesus. He's in our hearts. And we'll go from a long distance relationship to a in-person relationship and any couple that wants to have a permanent long-distance relationship would be the most dysfunctional couple on the face of this planet but most Christians want to maintain a, a permanent long-distance relationship with Jesus because the reality is they love this life more than the thought of heaven it's the reality so then we get scared of the second coming because we're really not ready for it because we don't want to go through the time of trouble because we know, we know we're not ready for the time of trouble because we don't want to give up our nice house and our nice car and our nice job and the comfortable life that we live. That's the reality if we're honest with ourselves. But if we love Jesus, we'll be like, praise the Lord, Jesus is coming soon. That's the reality. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, one of these days, Jesus is going to leave the sanctuary as high priest. And in fact, the seven trumpets teach that he begins his work in the trumpets as high priest, but he finishes his work and comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. That's Revelation eleven fifteen. So, what happens in the sanctuary. Let's go to Revelation 15. Revelation 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So when the seven last plagues happen, that means probation is closing. Then you see verses 2 through 4, and that's a description of the 144,000 who gained the victory over the beast, over his image, over the mark, and over the number of his name. That means these are people from the Second Advent movement who are alive at the end of this world. And they gained the victory. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. You think of the song of Moses. That's the song that the children of Israel sang when they crossed the, the Red Sea and then the Egyptians were destroyed. And they sang, I'll sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously. Because the Egyptian army was behind them and the Red Sea was before them and there was no way out but the deliverance of God. And the 144,000 will have no way out but the deliverance of God. And they sing the song of the Lamb because Jesus was faithful unto death and they would have been willing to die as well. So they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb and just when it seemed that they were going to die, they received the deliverance of God. Boy, I hope I sing that song. I hope, I hope we will all sing that song. That's right. And so, but then we get to verse 5. And this shows the end of the work of Christ 
in the sanctuary. And this section of Revelation is not talked about very often, but it's very important. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. A day is coming when the seven last plagues will be poured on the earth, and that means probation has closed. And verse 8 says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. This is showing us that Jesus has left the temple. Go to 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. And you look at the, the dedication of Solomon's temple. And when you come down to the end of this chapter, it talks about how smoke fills the temple after the priests come out of the temple. And if someone finds the verse, help me out because I'm... So here in 1 Kings 8, I'll just say this. At the dedication of the temple, the priests go into the temple, and as they come out at the dedication of the temple, as the temple has been completed, then smoke fills the temple. It's here in 1 Kings chapter 8, and I'm sorry I don't have um, the verse with me right now, but it's in here in chapter 8. So... Verse 10, okay, thank you. Here we go. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So when the smoke fills the temple, that means the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And that tells me in Revelation 15, when smoke fills the temple, the glory of the Lord is filling the temple. That is analogous to Revelation 18 where it says an angel comes down from heaven having great power and the earth is lightened with its glory. So the glory of God fills the temple in heaven because he's cleansed the sanctuary, the temple of sin. Christ in you, the hope of glory, has been completed. So now the high priest leaves the temple and the seven plagues begin to be poured out. Now, while the seven plagues are being poured out, what's happening to God's people here on this earth? Jacob's time of trouble. Jacob's time of trouble, and that especially happens um, in the, the sixth plague, the, the plague of Armageddon. Now, I want you to go to Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, we see what happened when the high priest finished his work on the Day of Atonement. And Christ is the high priest in the antitypical Day of Atonement right now. 
Well, let me start in verse 20. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So the sins of God's people that are confessed, they're blotted out in the most holy place on the day of atonement. That's the final atonement. But then those sins are transferred to the scapegoat who is Satan. Let me read to you a very interesting statement from Spalding and McGann Collection, page two. Here we read. Then I saw that Jesus' work in the sanctuary will soon be finished. And after his work there is finished, he will come to the door of the first apartment and confess the sins of Israel upon the head of the scapegoat. Then he will put on the garments of vengeance. Then the plagues will come upon the wicked. So this is all part of what we've seen here in Revelation 15. Christ finishes his work in the sanctuary. Now the sins of God's people that have been blotted out are placed on the scapegoat. So that's why Satan is motivated to have as many people lost as possible. Because the less people saved, the less sins are placed on his head at the end of probation. Then the plagues will come upon the wicked, and they do not come till Jesus puts on that garment and takes his place upon the great white cloud. Then, while the plagues are falling, the scapegoat is being led away. Now, who leads the scapegoat away? The fit man. He makes a mighty struggle to escape, but he is held fast by the hand that leads him. If he should effect his escape, Israel would lose their lives. I saw that it would take time to lead away the scapegoat into the land of forgetfulness after the sins were put on his head. So here's the deal. Christ finishes his work in the sanctuary. And he comes and places the sins of God's people that he blots out with his blood. And he places them on Satan when probation closes. Now the fit man is to lead the scapegoat away. Now who do you think the fit man is? The fit man was different than the high priest. And if you study this out... Who is described in Revelation 15 as singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? The 144,000. They are the ones through whom God works to triumph in the great controversy over Satan. Because in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, just think about this. Satan was a perfect being in a perfect environment who was a covering cherub over the mercy seat. And he sinned. And he says, God, your law is not fair. It cannot be kept. It's arbitrary. I was as close to you as any created being ever was, and I couldn't even keep your law, God. And then you create Adam and Eve, and look what I did to them. One little temptation, and they were flat on your face. And you're telling me that you're going to have a, a group called the 144,000 at the end of the world who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? Give me a break. And quietly at the end of the world, when Christ stands up and probation closes, 
he says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so probation closes and Satan says, you may say they are like this, but I know who they are. I remember what I did to Norman and he was just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I'll get him when probation closes. And the statement says, if the scapegoat should affect his escape, all Israel would lose their lives. So here's the thing. And a lot of Adventists don't realize that this, but there is a lot riding on the 144,000 through the time of trouble. Which is why Jesus hasn't come yet. Because do you think that he's going to let a, an unfit man who makes him want to throw up try to lead the scapegoat through during the time of trouble when the plagues are falling and Satan is allowed to do everything possible to get us to lose our hold on God? Do you think he's going to allow an unfit Seventh-day Adventist who doesn't have the slightest care about doing soul winning and who's all into the things of this world and knows more about Kim Kardashian than the work of God and Kobe Bryant or whatever. And But yeah, we're marching to Zion. We just don't think about it very much. No. Christ in you, the hope of glory, changes everything. We see Jesus on the cross. Our hearts are melted by his love. We repent be zealous therefore and repent. We repent of our lukewarm condition. Jesus comes in and when probation closes, he knows because God is all knowing. He knows he has that fit man to lead Satan away because what is Satan going to say now? He was a perfect being in a perfect environment and he sinned against God and God is going to say, Satan, you threw everything at them. They were human beings born at the worst time in earth's history every generation gets weaker and weaker and they were able through my grace and power to by allowing me to come in to perfect a christian character that shows that everything you've said about me is completely false jesus showed that when he lived here on this earth and Satan said, oh, but you're a God, even though Jesus came in a fallen human nature, and Satan knows that. So then he tries to make it sound like Jesus was different than us so that we can't really be like him. That's another attack of Satan in the great controversy. And then that's why the nature of Christ then can't be talked about because, oh, Satan doesn't want it to be talked about because he knows that's one of the keys to giving us faith to overcome because if Jesus could overcome in a fallen human nature, so can we. So anyway, Jesus is the root of David and because he took our nature, he can reproduce his character in our lives so that we become the root of David. So Jesus comes in, we overcome as he overcame, we sit with him in his throne, even as he has sat down with his father in his throne. We then receive the seal of the living God in our foreheads. The mystery of God is finished, and then we are prepared to lead Satan, the scapegoat, away when Jesus leaves the temple as our intercessor. And that's why we talk about salvation, and salvation is the same from the beginning of time to the end of time, but there's a difference between being saved and being spiritually mature. You can be a babe in Christ and have a saving relationship with Jesus, and you're going to grow it from a blade to an ear to a full corn in the ear. When God has the full corn in the ear, which is a mature Christian, he harvests his people. 
you can be saved, fully surrendered, but you may not yet be fully mature. There may be things that you don't understand about the health message or about, you know, various types of reforms. But you've surrendered everything that you know up until that point. And as more light comes, you keep surrendering. And as more light comes, you keep surrendering. And you say, yes, Lord. And, and this, at the same time, you don't turn around and become judgmental towards those who aren't at the same place you are. You use the Spirit of Christ to maybe help them. But anyway, you keep growing and growing, and there will come a point, and you won't realize it, but there will come a point in your Christian experience where there won't be anything left for Jesus to have you give up. And it's going to happen, interestingly enough to me, at an individual level, but also on a large scale level, so that God is going to have a whole group of people ready to go through the final crisis. So it's not just going to be like, see, I had Enoch and I had Job and Elijah and Moses. I, he's going to say, look at this whole movement that I've developed. Now, here's the amazing thing. and I'll, um, Yeah, I'm about to wrap up. Christ comes down as the mighty angel in Revelation chapter 10 for the purpose of developing a group of people like him so that the mystery of God could be finished. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Revelation 18, when that work is finished, this angel comes down again, and Ellen White calls it a mighty angel again, where it says, And I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. You, know, you want to know why it has power? Because all over the world, Jesus has been reproduced in the lives of his second advent movement. So Revelation 10 is powerful because Jesus is the mighty angel and he raises up a movement. But Revelation 18 is even more powerful because Jesus has reproduced himself in his entire movement. And when Jesus reproduces himself in his entire movement, when the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ through the second advent movement, then Jesus leaves the temple, the plagues begin to fall, and the 144,000 lead Satan away, and that is the end of Satan and the great controversy until the destruction of the wicked at the end of the thousand years. So friends, we are a special group of people. And in some cases, for not good reasons, we're the group of people that Jesus says makes him want to throw up. But we're also the group of people that he's going to take from being like that to being like him. And it's at weekends like this where we can renew a commitment, or maybe we've never made that commitment, to let Christ really become our righteousness. To have the filthy rags taken off and to have his white garment put on. So many of us want our filthy rags to be covered so that we can keep sinning. And Jesus says, no, we take the filthy garments off. Then he comes in, cleans us up. And that's what Jesus is doing right now in heaven. So by the grace of God, I want to be one of the saints that sings the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And it will only be by the grace of God, because I know that if I, do it, I try to do it on my own, I'm going to be flat on my face. But if I, I know that if I surrender to Jesus, if I choose to give my heart and yield my will to him, he will come in 
and change me and transform me and you and transform us into the likeness of his image so that we will be loving and lovable Christians who win souls for God. Let's close with prayer. And if you would, kneel with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you love us so much that you've sent Jesus to die for us as our Savior and to be our high priest in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And as we live at this late day of the antitypical Day of Atonement, at this late date in Earth's history, as we see the signs all around us that Jesus is coming soon, I pray that we would not be motivated by fear to prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus. I pray that we would be motivated by love for what Jesus has done for us so that we will let Christ come in so that his character will be reproduced in us so that we will see our hearts knit together in love so that we will become spiritually mature so that you can give us the grace and the strength to lead the fit man into the land of forgetfulness. Forgive us for being lukewarm. Forgive us for being selfish. Help us to grow into the full measure of the stature that Christ would have, that we would be presented perfect in Christ Jesus. Be with each person here today. Thank you that you love us and be with us, cleanse us, and may we be faithful and found in the kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.